तदेकं स्मरामस्तदेकं भजामः तदेकं जगत्साक्षिरूपं नमामः सदेकं निधानं निरालंबमीशं भवां बोधिपोतं शरण्यं व्रजामः ओम शान्ति 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 On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship, to that alone, the witness of the universe, do we bow, to that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of samsara, do we come for refuge. Om, peace, peace. Peace. Good morning. Today our topic is Vedanta, Ecology and Evolution. This talk grew out of a, an interfaith panel discussion that I participated in uh, maybe a year ago or so, year and a half ago. Uh, in which uh, various representatives of different religions came to discuss the ecological challenges we are facing and what uh, religion has to say about it. And this is now uh, a, a, a very big topic in the news all the time. And uh, so pe people are thinking how, if in any way, can religion play a part in addressing the, the challenges. To our ancestors, the earth must have seemed infinite. Infinite sky, infinite waters, infinite land. There was no mechanized transportation, so one could walk for days or walk for weeks or even walk for months and not come to the end of the land. It was only uh, maybe two and a half thousand years ago that we human beings even discovered that the earth is not flat, but it's a sphere. It's a limited sphere, a globe. And even then, she always seemed big enough to provide everything, to bear everything, to absorb everything. But now we find that uh, we are pushing up against the limits of Mother Earth. The Earth is a limited organism, limited in size, and we have seven billion brothers and sisters living here on this Earth. And our consumption of resources and resulting production of waste are increasing. As we are becoming more, they are increasing, and we are also increasing each person consuming more, wasting more. So while Mother Earth may be infinite in complexity, infinitely complex, but she is finite in extensity. There's only so many uh, square miles of Earth, so, many, so much uh, clean air, so much water, and we're pushing against the limits of it. And the, 
The uh, television now is reaching into every nook and cranny of the earth. Every remote village practically has television now. And the television spreading the modern gospel of luxury and technology and air conditioning. Everybody wants his or her own air-conditioned car and air-conditioned home. Naturally, in a hot place, we want air conditioning. So it's uh, actually quite depressing to study it. When we begin to study the magnitude of the challenges, it becomes quite depressing. We don't want to face it. We don't want to face it. It just seems like too much. How are we going to address this challenge of uh, too many people, too much stuff, too much pollution, global warming, climate change, all these things? How are we going to address it? So this is what I feel is a, we are now facing what we might call the biggest challenge of our evolutionary history. It won't do to think, just think it's, it'll go away. If I don't think about it, it'll go away, or God will take care. See, we have dug ourselves into this pit, so we have to dig ourselves out of it. I'm reminded of Peace Pilgrim, who gives a wonderful idea about facing problems. She says, problems are opportunities in disguise. If you did not face problems, you would just drift through life. It is through solving problems in accordance with the highest light we have that inner growth is attained. Now, collective problems must be solved by us collectively. And no one finds inner peace who avoids doing his or her share in the solving of collect collective problems. This is Peace Pilgrim. No one finds inner peace who doesn't do his share or her share in solving collective problems. So we are facing a challenging collective problem and it calls for a collective solution. I call it an evolutionary leap. We are not going to solve this problem just by recycling more newspapers and making more fuel efficient cars. Those, th these things are important, these things are good. But the magnitude of the problem requires a solution of equivalent magnitude, of equal proportions. We are being challenged to move forwards, to move upwards, and to take the next step in human evolution, which is the spiritual step. Only in that way can we hope to curb consumption, uh, which is now uh, burning up our resources at an unsustainable rate. One might object, well, why get religion involved? This is a social and political and economic problem. I'm arguing here that it's actually a spiritual problem, or perhaps we can say the, uh, the problem of a lack of spirituality. It has much to do with our attitudes towards ourselves and our attitudes towards our world. And uh, religions play a major role in shaping these attitudes, in shaping how we understand the world and our place in it, and, and our responsibility to it. And uh, religions in the past have contributed to the problems we are now facing by propounding certain kinds of ideas. So religions also will have a significant role in facing our problems, 
by, uh, by correcting these ideas. So let's take a minute to think about the roots of the ecological crisis we are facing. We can name many possible causes, overpopulation, industrialization, rampant greed and selfishness, consumerism, hyper-technologization, hyper uh, urban isolation from natural habitats, alienation from nature, dirty power, lack of pollution controls, and so forth and so on. So many different uh, causes. And these are all true. And people are trying to address these various issues. And trying to do things like saving natural habitats and trying to save whales and tigers from extinction. And all these things are certainly good, but they don't go far enough. And to address our cha this challenge squarely, we have to look at its deepest roots, its very deepest roots. And if we distill it down to the very root cause from the Vedantic standpoint, I think it lies in a fundamental misunderstanding regarding how we look upon ourselves, how I understand myself, how I understand other people, the universe, and my relation between these things. So most of us, most human beings, look upon ourselves as separate, entirely separate entities. I am a separate individual with my own body, my own mind, my own personality. I'm separate from everybody else, and I'm separate from the universe. I'm an individual, me, with free will to choose what I want to do, to do what I want with my own body and my own person. If I'm a religious person, I believe in a God. God is also separate from me. God is separate from the world and maybe he can intervene if he likes but separate in western democracies especially we have this idea of, that we should have the freedom to do whatever we want in fact it is a god-given right an inalienable right to liberty and the pursuit of happiness this is our declaration of independence in the united states we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So I think implicit in this worldview is the idea that God, that, excuse me, that the earth is separate from me, it exists for me. My purpose is somehow to extract happiness from it. This is my goal to extract happiness from the earth. Hmm? <laughs> we find this uh, in the uh, creation myth of the Bible, the Christian and Jewish Bible, book of Genesis. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So this idea is rooted in uh, the Western culture and the Judeo-Christian worldview. Subdue the earth. Have dominion over every living thing. So perhaps we can sum it up by saying the outlook of most people 
is characterized by this feeling of separateness, dissimilarity, the independence of the individual, and the world is merely insentient matter, the whole universe revolves around me. Just as the ancients used to think that the whole universe revolves around the earth, and then they found, oh no, the sun is, the earth revolves around the sun. Well, we think actually the, the whole universe revolves around me. So when such an attitude is held by the majority of seven billion people, we get a lot of problems. Problems of getting along together without killing each other, and the problem of damaging the environment to the point that it is damaging us, that its ability to support life is compromised, and even the problem of the, our inability to squarely face the problem and do something about it. So Vedanta stands in direct opposition to this outlook, to these ideas. Vedanta says that when I say I am separate from you, I'm making a big mistake. When I say I am, the world is separate from me, I'm making a big mistake. When I think that the purpose of my life is to enjoy the world, to seek my happiness by whatever means, to extract happiness from the world, I'm making a big mistake. Because behind the amazing diversity, we find unity. Even from the standpoint of science, the idea of separateness is a mistake. Ecology is the science of living beings, their environment and interrelatedness. And ecology recognizes that biological beings exist in ecosystems of interdependence in which each part or element of the system plays an essential role. Remove or damage one element and the whole system is affected. We human beings, even from this standpoint, we have forgotten that we are parts of an ecosystem, this ecosystem of the world, even on the biological level. We go from our air-conditioned car to our air-conditioned office to our air-conditioned home. Our food comes packaged in plastic wrap from the supermarket, and we have no sense of our interconnectedness on a biological level with the earth, uh, with other human beings. We're all separate. We forget that our life is intimately connected with the plants and with the trees and with the ocean and with the sun and with the wind. We forget that. The idea of the pursuit of happiness is also paradoxical, utterly paradoxical. It's what all human beings want. We all want to be happy. Everyone wants happiness. We fundamentally seek peace and joy, but how do we seek it? We seek it by trying to extract it from life, from the world, by trying to fulfill desires for physical enjoyment, intellectual enjoyment, aesthetic enjoyment emotional stimulation and by trying to destroy anything that comes in the way of that enjoyment. From this kind of outlook comes the phenomenon we can call consumerism, which is what, is the, what the current world, global economic system is built on, is consumerism. It is a th the theory that, I'm quoting, the progressively greater consumption of goods is economically beneficial. 
That's consumerism. The theory that progressively greater consumption of goods is economically beneficial. And it's true. It's economically beneficial in the short term. The long term, it's unsustainable. You can't have an infinite progression in a finite system. So this is the uh, craziness going on right now in our world. Here again, Vedanta says we're making a fundamental error. The pursuit of happiness is a paradox because we can never, true joy, peace, and happiness can never be found through enjoyment of pleasure, stimulation, physical stimulation, economic stimulation, intellectual, aesthetic, emotional. We can't catch it. The more we try to catch happiness, the more it slips out of our grasp. We only get a temporary temporary satiety. It doesn't last. Again, desire comes, peacelessness comes, annoying hunger nibbles away at our peace and happiness. But it can be found. Vedanta says that peace and joy and happiness is the very basis of our being. Our true being is rooted in the divine, which is of the very nature of bliss, infinite bliss. There we are not separate. There we are one. We are all connected in that infinite ground of being whose very nature is consciousness and bliss. So we start to find happiness as we cultivate the spiritual virtues like selflessness, humility, peacefulness, compassion, service. As we begin to practice meditation, begin to try to begin to see who we really are, one with infinite spirit, one with the whole universe. On the interfaith panel I mentioned, we found that the, all the world's religions do have a lot of positive ideas about caring for the earth and uh, the earth ideas like the earth belongs to God, it is only entrusted to our care, it is sacred, the world is a gift from God to us. Indigenous traditions like Native American traditions especially speak to a reverential and grateful attitude to Mother Earth and often seem to resonate with the ancient Vedic views. Uh, one presenter at the uh, panel, uh, a Native American uh, named Jose Barreiro, he propounded five principles common to American indigenous traditions. The first, world, the world is alive. Everything reflects consciousness. The second, everything needs to be appreciated. Because it is alive and reflecting consciousness, everything needs to be appreciated in memory and in ceremony. A third, there should be reciprocity in all relations. Always give something back. Before cutting a tree, they will request permission from the tree to cut. And then they'll do a little ceremony of atonement afterwards. They recognize the natural balance, the equilibrium in the world. And one, they develop a rational way of thinking based on these four other principles. The fifth principle is to develop a rational way of thinking based on these principles. So it was uh, be beautiful to see how the native uh, indigenous traditions have this uh, 
outlook, this worldview. One rabbi who participated in the panel, she said, after the discussion, we have the principles, we have the ideas, but people aren't getting it. People aren't getting it. So it's because we need more than ideas. We need transformation. We need to transform our worldview. We need to transform our understanding of who we are and what our place in the world is. I'd like to look a little more closely at the Vedic viewpoint, the viewpoint, the integrated vision of the Vedic rishis, the seers. In this view, the life is seen as a cycle of give and take. One's life is a participation in a cosmic yajna, the cycle of give and take, the network of interconnectedness in harmony with the cosmic order called Ritam, obeying the spiritual laws governing the universe, like the law of cause and effect, the law of sacrifice or unselfish action, leading every being to a greater and greater spiritual unfoldment, and ultimately bringing one to complete freedom, spiritual emancipation, which comes on realizing that one's true nature is itself the ever-free, ever-blissful, divine reality. This term, yajna, is a very important term. It's very difficult to translate. This cosmic yajna is often uh, translated as sacrifice, and originally the term referred to the uh, offerings into the sacred fire, pouring offerings of ghee into the sacred fire, but the term evolved in its, its meaning evolved to mean much more than that. The term sacrifice, the translation of the term of sacrifice is also not satisfactory because sacrifice has a sense of loss, of giving up something only, whereas yajna embodies both giving, both relinquishing, and also receiving. Swami Ranganathananda gives a beautiful definition. He defines yajna as the cosmic principle expressing what modern science has recognized as the interrelatedness of all things. It encompasses unselfish action, sacrifice, give and take, participating in the great cycle in which everything depends on everything else. In the Vedic conception, as we receive from the universe, so we also are to give back to the universe. And uh, as a reminder of this, the ancient uh, Indians, the ancient, Hin uh, we can't say Hindus because Hinduism is a modern idea, the ancient followers of Vedanta were, uh, would perform daily five yajnas, the yajna to the devas, to the divine, Deva yajna, Brahma yajna, yajna to the rishis, the seers, Pitra yajna, yajna for the ancestors, Nre yajna, yajna of, towards other human beings, and Bhuta yajna, yajna towards other be animals. And simple, simple uh, rituals were done in this, in this way to uh, honor and respect all beings in this interconnected network of being that we are. In the Vedantic approach, everything is sacred. 
The divine is within all, the sun, the moon, the earth, fire, water, wind, sky, all are manifestations of the divine. The Upanishad instructs us to cover everything with the Lord, to see it verily as the divine. Says the Isha Upanishad. Cover everything with the Lord, everything that exists. This gives rise to a deep reverence for the earth and for our place in it, a deep reverence. The Bhagavad Gita especially develops this idea of yajna in chapter 3. It's worth it to have a look at it. I'll read three verses. The Prajapati, having in the beginning created humankind together with yajna, said, quote, By this shall you multiply. This shall be the milch cow of your desires. Cherish the devas with this yajna, and may the devas cherish you. Thus, cherishing one another, you shall gain the highest good. The devas cherished by yajna will give you desired for objects. Then Sri Krishna continues. So, he who enjoys objects given by the devas without offering in return to them is verily a thief. Let's not take this passage too literally. Let's look a little more deeply. First, first of all, it's interesting to contrast with the Bible passage. Be fruitful and multiply. That part is the same. And then, and fill the earth and subdue it. On the one hand, we have fill the earth and subdue it. On the other hand, we have cherish the devas with yajna and mutually cherishing each other. You shall attain the highest good. In Vedic times, the various forces of nature were personified and called devas. So Sri Krishna is explaining here the way of life based on the interconnectedness of all things, of oneself with the earth and the plants and the sun and the moon. Cherish the devas with this yajna, and may the devas cherish you, thus cherishing one another, you shall gain the highest good. Devan bhavayatanena Te deva bhavayantu vaha Parasparam bhavayanta Shreya paramavapsyatha This parasparam bhavayanta Mutually cherishing one another. It's a beautiful idea. That we are, mutual, we are cherishing the day, we are cherishing the earth and the earth is cherishing us. We are cherishing the plants and the plants are cherishing us. The devas are the shining beings in charge of the various forces of nature. If we take pure water from the rivers and return to it polluted water, we are not mutually cherishing. We are not living according to the law of yajna. Rather, we are living as a thief. If we take pure air from the sky and fill the sky with exhaust fumes from a million factories and a billion cars, we are not mutually cherishing. We are not living according to the law of yajna. We are living as a thief. If we take the pure fruits of the earth, but put into the earth only our garbage and our poison and our nuclear waste, we are not mutually cherishing. We are not living according to the law of yajna. We are living as a thief. 
What if instead, say we, we, we cut down a tree? What if we plant five saplings? We need water for our factory. What if we filter out all the pollutants before putting it back into the river? Then we begin to understand this principle of parasparam bhavayanta, mutually cherishing this principle of yajna. The Bhagavad Gita Sri Krishna calls this universal cycle of interconnectedness a wheel of yajna, a yajna chakra, a wheel of yajna. Evam pravartitam chakram nanuvartayati hayaha aghayurindriyaramo mogham parthasajivati One who in this world follows not the wheel of yajna thus set revolving, living a life of sin and being delighted in the senses, lives in vain, says Sri Krishna. A life of unrestrained consumption is a life lived in vain. A purely selfish life is a life lived in vain. A life in which we fail to play our role in the yajna chakra, fail to play our small part in the great symphony of life is a life lived in vain. Every action has its effect. Unrestrained consumption, unrestrained delight in the senses, this indriyaramaha has repercussions, repercussions on many planes. We get environmental problems, social problems, and personal problems. I'd like to give an example of a, a simple example, a small example really, of a failure to recognize the interconnectedness. It's almost more on a biological level, but it's a, it's a common, partly because it's an issue even in our monasteries. Uh, the the uh, agricultural scientists have developed a very interesting chemical called glyphosate. It's an, it's an herbicide. And it, when you have weeds, you spray it on the weeds and they die. It's very powerful, it's very strong. It's commonly known as Roundup. Most of you have probably heard of it. And it's great, you have a weedy area, you spray on it and then the weeds die and you plant your plants that you want. And, and uh, now one company, that the company that developed it has also uh, developed some crops like soybeans that are resistant to this glyphosate. So it's uh, glyphosate or Roundup they call it Roundup Ready soybeans. So it's, it seems like such a brilliant solution to the problem of weeds for farmers. You plant your soybeans, you irrigate the field, or you wait for the rain, the soybeans come up, and a lot of weeds also come up. So what do you do about the weeds? You spray glyphosate all over it, and all the weeds die, but the soybeans, they don't die because they've been specially developed. And so your weeds die, your soybeans are free to grow better because there are no weeds and you harvest, harvesting is easier because there's no weeds. And it's a beautiful, utterly ingenious solution, quite frankly, an ingenious solution. But <laughs> it turns out that glyphosate is harmful to earthworms and the other little critters that live in the soil. Now, earthworms are an essential part of the ecosystem. They digest the rotting plant matter and turn it into nutrients for the plants. There are so many bacteria living in the soil. It's a living organism, as it were, a living ecosystem. 
Spraying glyphosate is a quick and easy solution to weeds, but it damages the ecosystem. It kills the little critters, and the soil gradually dies. So this is one, one small example being followed all over the world that overlooks this principle of yajna, of this, this interdependence of mutually cherishing. I'd like to turn to Swami Vivekananda. He says, interdependence is the law of the whole universe. I'll read a, I'll read a couple of quotes. Thinkers in India, thinkers in ancient India, he says, gradually came to understand that the idea of separateness was erroneous, that there was a common connection among all those distinct objects. There was a unity which pervaded the whole universe. Trees, shrubs, animals, men, devas, even God himself. The Advaitin reaching the climax in this line of thought declared all to be but the manifestations of the one. In reality, the metaphysical and the physical universe are one, and the name of this one is Brahman, and the perception of separateness is an error. One more quote. He describes the universe as a marvelous interdependence of existence, where the smallest atom is necessary for the existence of the whole. All things are interpenetrated by that infinite ocean. Their reality is that infinite, and whatever there is on the surface is but that infinite. The tree is infinite, so is everything that you see or feel, every grain of sand, every thought, every soul, everything that exists is infinite. So we see how this uh, view of the, uh, the Vedantic view as expounded by Swami Vivekananda so beautifully that this interdependence that we're talking about, though we see it on an ecological level and a physical level, ultimately its root, the roots of interdependence are spiritual. Why is everything interdependent? Because everything is rooted in that infinite reality we call it Brahman, we call it consciousness, we call it God. So we, we're facing a tremendous challenge. And that's why, I've, as I mentioned, I feel that the solution lies in this evolutionary leap. If we go back over uh, the history of human evolution, we find that there are certain big jumps. It seems to go, things seem to go, just go along as they're going, and then humanity takes a leap, an evolutionary leap. Some of the leaps uh, outlined by people who study these things are, say, one was the development of an opposable thumb. A lot of animals, they, they don't have an opposable thumb. They can't grab things very easily. Only they use their mouth to grab things. Opposable thumb means you can grab things. That's a big evolutionary leap. Then, the development of language, another big evolutionary leap, when human beings started being able to communicate uh, complex ideas with one, to, to one another. Then, the development of agriculture was another evolutionary leap. 
social organization, another evolutionary leap, in the industrial revolution and mass production of goods, another evolutionary leap, in this current information explosion which we are witnessing. We are right now witnessing another evolutionary leap. So each of these steps rests on the previous steps. And now it, the time has come for the next evolutionary leap, that's the spiritual transformation. This time, the required transformation is spiritual. A new understanding of who we are and our relation to others and the earth, not based on what someone tells us. It's not enough to study these ideas in books and say, yes, now we're going to have a transformation. We have to experience it ourselves. When we directly experience our interconnectedness, not on the level of ideas, but deep down within, we feel it. When we feel our rootedness in the divine ground, which is the basis of all beings and all things, we will not ask, when we feel this, we will not ask, what can the world give to me? We will ask, what can I give to the world? I took that from John F. Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> he, it was a beautiful statement he made in his inaugural address. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I'm giving it the Vedantic spin, expanding it. Ask not what I can get from the world, ask not what the world is going to give to me, ask what I can give to the world, how can I serve? So that question naturally comes when we start to feel this interconnectedness, when we start to make this spiritual step, this next step in our evolution. When we feel that interconnectedness, we will understand how our life is a participation in the co great cosmic cycle of give and take. We will understand this, that we are just a part of the cosmic web of interdependence, how our life is to be lived in harmony with the cosmic order. As we receive from the universe, so we must return to the universe. So this is what Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda have come for to set in motion this next evolutionary leap. Swami Vivekananda foresaw this step, this next step in our evolution, and he felt that it was the power released by his master, Sri Ramakrishna, that would set it in motion. He would often write to his disciples who are start, just starting the work of spreading the teachings. Uh, with such inspiration, he would write in this way, a huge spiritual tidal wave is coming. He who is low shall become noble, and he who is ignorant shall become the teacher of great scholars through his grace. This idea of a tidal wave of spirituality unleashed by Sri Ramakrishna. It, when he was returned from his first visit to America and the West, he traveled all over India giving a lot of speeches and in Madras, in many places, he received addresses, uh, written addresses to him in appreciation of his work and in Madras he re received one such address and he gave a reply to that address, one of his famous speeches. In this address, apparently, a great reverence and respect was shown for Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda addresses this, he, he remarks on this, he says, your generous appreciation 
of him whose message to India and to the whole world I, the most unworthy of his servants, had the privilege to bear, shows your innate spiritual instinct, which saw in him and his message the first murmurs of that tidal wave of spirituality which is destined at no distant future to break upon India in all its irresistible powers, carrying away in its omnipotent flood all that is weak and defective and raising the Hindu race to the platform it is destined to occupy in the providence of God. Crowned with more glory than it ever had even in the past, the reward of centuries of silent suffering and fulfilling its mission amongst the races of the world, the evolution of spiritual humanity. So Swami Vivekananda clearly saw that his master's message was to transform the world and bring about uh, our spiritual evolution. And it, it seems he felt that India was to be the start of it, but we see that he also laid the same seeds here in this country. So when he was talking to Indians, he's pushing them up. When he's talking to Americans, he's pushing them up. He's come for the whole world. He has come for the whole world. Swami Vivekananda predicted, the time is to come when prophets will walk through every street in every city in the world. He is commanding us, you will be prophets, you will be rishis, you will be seers. It is not enough to say, oh yes, the ancient seers, how great they were. No, Swami Vivekananda is calling all of us to be rishis ourselves, to be uh, seers ourselves. This is the message of Sri Ramakrishna to the modern world, he says. Care not for doctrines or for dogmas, for sects or for churches. All these count for but little compared with that essence of existence which is in each one and is called spirituality. The more this is developed in a man, the more powerful is he for good. He who has most of it can do most to his fellow men. I'd like to take up briefly some objections or doubts we may raise in all of this in relation to the topic under discussion today. First is that Swami Vivekananda didn't mention anything about the ecological crisis or about uh, uh, addressing uh, the overconsumption and pollution and all these things. He didn't address it. Though he did mention, when he went to Kashmir, he said the most beautiful places, but the, the, the cities are terribly dirty. He didn't make a note of it, but he didn't address it. He didn't say this should all be cleaned up. Now in 1900, nearly the end of Swami Vivekananda's life, the, the population of the earth was uh, 1,650,000,000 approximately. And Swami Vivekananda perhaps didn't foresee the explosion of the population. It's currently more than four times that, that it was in 1900. But clearly he did see the need for the spiritual evolution of humanity. And he felt that he was a, a humble bearer of that message which would bring about the needed transformation. Another objection we, we Vedantists sometimes raise is, is, well, the world is just a dog's curly tail. You can't straighten it out. 
the problems in the world. It's like rheumatism. If you drive it from your toe, it'll go to your ankle. If you drive it from your ankle, it'll go to your knee. If you drive it from your knee, it'll go to your hip. Why bother? Hmm? This is based in Sri Ramakrishna's parables. He had the parable of a ghost. A man got control of a ghost. He, he, his teacher gave him some mantras and he got control of the ghost. And the ghost said, all right, I'll do whatever you want, but you've got to keep me busy. The minute you don't have anything for me to do, I'm going to break your neck. Okay, so the man said, okay, no problem. I'll build me a nice house. It's done. Here's your house. Oh, great. Well, uh, build, me a, build me a village. So, it's done. What next? Uh, build me a city. City's built. What next? And the, the man started to get a little worried. <laughs> What's he going to do? So uh, he, he started to think. And then the ghost said, give me something else or I'm going to wring your neck. I'm going to break your neck. So he said, wait, wait. And he ran to his teacher with the ghost in hot pursuit and said, oh, teacher, save me. What, what am I going to do now? And he said, see, I warned you. Anyhow, here, give him this tail. He cut off the tail of a, a dog and gave it to him and said, Straight, have the ghost straighten out the tail. So the ghost straightens out the tail. He said, done. And he lets it go, and the, dog, the tail curls back up. And so the ghost, then again, he straightens out, and then again, here it is, let's go, and it curls right back up. So the story is that uh, then the ghost realized that it was caught, it would spend the rest of eternity straightening out the tail. So he begged to be released from his... Uh, uh, and agreed not to wring the neck of the man, not to break his neck, so that way the, the problem was solved. And then, the, then the, the, the moral of the story is the world is like that. You can't straighten it out. Well, Swami Vivekananda doesn't say exactly that. He says, when we know that this world is like a dog's curly tail and will never get straightened, we shall not become fanatics. If there were no fanaticism in the world, it would make much more progress than it does now. Swami Vivekananda was not against evolution, not against being a force for good rather than evil, only recognizing that the world actually is a mix of good and evil. By working to, by trying to help others, actually we're helping ourselves. So it's, it's this, this attitude. If the dog is, if the world is only a dog's curly tail and you, nothing can be done to help it, to, nothing can, then why would the great souls bother to come? Why would Swami Vivekananda bother to take birth and spread the, the message of Vedanta to the world? Most uh, religious traditions have some elements in them, some world-denying elements, which may contribute to uh, a kind of apathy towards the world. It's unreal. Ultimately, it's unreal like a dream. Sometimes we talk like that, the, the, the Vedantic. It's, it's impermanent. It had a beginning. It will have an end. All this trouble here, well, okay, it's, all the species are going extinct. Well, every last species will go extinct when the world dies. The world will die one day. The sun will run out of fuel. Everything is going to die. Why worry about it? Okay, this is one, my reply to this is that this is one attitude. This, it's, context is essential. It's not, this is not to be applied in the present context. This is to be applied when we are trying to develop detachment, when we are trying to develop a little renunciation, when we are trying to uh, stoke the fire of 
longing for God, then we look at the impermanence of the world and say, it's all impermanent, oh Lord, you are the only permanent reality. You are the one I want. You are the only one that, will, that is eternal. Show me my true self, however we, whatever is our approach. Uh, at that time, this is the approach. But when we're talking about uh, ushering in an evolutionary leap, then we understand that uh, we take a different attitude. We take the attitude that the world itself is a manifestation of the divine, and our role is to serve the divine. Actually, we all have a role to play as bearers of the message of Sri Ramakrishna, as bearers of the message of Swami Vivekananda. It's not enough to come to the Vedanta Society and say, yes, I'm a Vedantist. No, we ourselves have to become bearers of the message. We have to live the message. We have to spread the message. We have to uh, shed the light of harmony and spirituality and mutually cherishing this principle of mutually cherishing one another. This we, have, we are called upon as students of Vedanta, as, as followers of Sri. Cut six pieces of lemon for him. He scolded him. He said, you are wasting the devotee's hard-earned money, which they are giving for my service. It is better to be miserly than extravagant. He just needed one piece, and out of devotion, he thought, give him lots of pieces to choose from. He can choose the best, or whatever it is. An incident in the life of uh, Holy Mother Sri Sarada Devi is instructive. Uh, she was there in uh, Calcutta at her Calcutta residence, the Udbodhan house, and somebody came, a man came with a basket of fruits which were meant for offering, and the fruits were kept in a basket. And so he brought the fruits, and the monks took the fruits and said, the monks were living downstairs, and then he said, what should I do with the basket? And the monks said, oh, just throw it out in the road. <laughs> That's the Indian system, just throw it out in the road. Uh, <laughs> so the mother got up. She was upstairs. She got up and went to the porch, and she looked in the lane, and she saw that the basket was lying in the lane. And she said, look there. They have asked him to throw away such a nice basket. It does not matter for them in the least. They are all monks and totally unattached. But we cannot allow such waste. 
We could have utilized the basket at least for keeping the peelings of vegetables. And she asked someone to go fetch the basket and wash it, and it was kept for a future use. Now, same day, a little later, a beggar came to the house and shouted for some alms. And the monks felt annoyed and said rudely, go away now, don't disturb us. Holy Mother's upstairs, she's hearing everything. She says, did you hear their remarks? They have driven away the poor man. They could sh not shake off their idleness and give something to the beggar. He only wanted a handful of rice and they could not take the trouble to do this bit of work. Is it proper to deprive a man of what is his due? Even to the cow we owe these peelings of the vegetables. We should hold these near her mouth. So here we see this, this principle of yagna we've been talking about, of mutually cherishing. We see this manifested in the life of the Holy Mother in these very small incidents. How are we going to bring in this uh, next evolutionary leap? Well, where do we start? Right here. I would like to offer one possible suggestion that we begin by expanding our we. We all have a we. We, we have a lot of little we's. My family, we went on vacation. or My school, uh, we won the... Uh, we, we won the football game, or my city, my state, my country, my religion. I'm American, I am Russian, I am Chinese, I'm Indian, I'm Pakistani, I'm Hindu, I'm Muslim, I'm Christian. We are all Christians, we are all Hindus, we are all Pakistanis. These are all small we's, they're all little we's. Rather, we need a big we, we human beings, we inhabitants of Mother Earth, we manifestations of the divine, we all children of the divine mother. These are the big we. The big we doesn't exclude anyone. The small we excludes. It's us against them. But why should we have any them? As Vedantists, we, don't, we shouldn't have any us and them. It's all we. No one is a stranger. The whole world is your own. So we see everywhere a be the beginnings of this spiritual awakening. Let us protect it and nourish it. I hope you'll forgive me for uh, giving and closing with another quote from Swami Vivekananda. The, the utility of spiritual evolution. He says, religious realization does all the good to the world. This will be the great good to the world resulting from such realization that instead of this world going on with all its friction and clashing, if all mankind today realize only a bit of that great truth, the aspect of the whole world will be changed and in place of fighting and quarreling, there would be a reign of peace. This indecent and brutal hurry which forces us to go ahead of everyone else will then vanish from the world. With it will vanish all struggle. With it will vanish all hate. With it will vanish all jealousy and all evil will vanish away forever. Gods will then live upon this earth. This very earth will then become heaven. And what evil can there be when gods are playing with gods, when gods are working with gods, and gods are loving gods? 
That is the great utility of divine realization. The time is coming when these thoughts will be cast abroad over the whole world. Instead of living in monasteries, instead of being confined to books of philosophy to be studied only by the learned, instead of being the exclusive possession of sects and of a few of the learned, they will all be sown broadcast over the whole world so that they may become the common property of the saint and the sinner, of men and women and children, of the learned and of the ignorant. They will then permeate the atmosphere of the world and the very air that we breathe will say with every one of its pulsations, thou art that. And the whole universe with its myriads of suns and moons through everything that speaks with one voice will say, thou art that.